All right, I'll have a seat. Y'all look, looking too tired. Stand up too long. Don't want to don't do that to you. Take the wind out of you before we even get started. All right, so we're going to work on this, this passage a little bit in reverse real quickly. I want to talk about those last three verses, verses 43 through 45. What we see at the end of this chapter is the end of the parsing out of the land for the Israelites. They spent chapters 13 through 21 handing out land, their allotments, their inheritance from God, these little like states within Israel. And Levi, the tribal Levi, gets a different treatment. But by the end of this, all of the land is handed out and it's all done. The whole occupational campaign is essentially accomplished. They've got rest from fighting and everybody's got their land. And it says, every word of the Lord came to pass. And very quickly, it came to pass does not mean that it showed up just so it can leave. It came to pass means that he fulfilled what he said he was going to do. He fulfilled all of his promises. And just as we read in Isaiah 55, 11, his word does not ever return void. It accomplishes every purpose he sends it out to do. And the Lord gets credit for having given all their enemies into their hands. The Lord's getting credit for everything that's happened in the book of Joshua, if you've noticed. The Israelites are doing a lot of work, a lot of fighting, doing a lot of obedience, and God gets the credit. And that's kind of, a, kind of showing how, how this works, how God works through the Bible. He works through humans and still gets the credit. Now, this is not to, to take away from the character of God. This is not a, a, any slight against the Lord. This is how it is, because he, through his sovereign purposes and plans and actions, has accomplished all of this using humans. So the Lord gets the credit. The Lord has given Israel land. He has given them victory, and he has given them rest. And now Israel is giving land to the Levites, to the Levitical priesthood. This is a chapter about giving. Like I said, I need you to to bear with me. I said said giving, and somebody zoned out immediately. They're like, oh, church is talking about money. Bear with me. As I said before, this is about hope. So at the start of this passage, the other tribes are providing cities for the Levites to live in. The Levites don't get the same inheritance everybody else does. Everybody else gets these, these allotments, essentially states within the country of Israel. The Levites don't. They are special. Everybody else is getting places to live, and you don't because you're special. It's the best kind of special. The Levites don't get their own chunk of land, but we've got to figure out why. So to do that, we need to go back to Numbers chapter 18, you want to go ahead and flip there. We got to, and in this, God is speaking to Aaron, the high priest. And in speaking to Aaron, the high priest, he's essentially speaking to all of the Levites and the Levitical priesthood. They're a special tribe who get the job of ministering to God in the tabernacle, or what's called the tent of meeting, and later on, the temple. And they do all of the ministerial duties. They are special. So Numbers 18, verses 20 through 24 And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. 
So this answers that question. Why, why are they special? Why don't they get land like everybody else? Because their inheritance is not the land that God promised Israel. Their inheritance is God himself and getting to minister within the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And this chapter is actually the institution of the tithe. Numbers 18 is the institution of the principle known as the tithe. There are patterns that exist before Numbers 18, but this is the first time it shows up in, in law and is laid out in principle and in percentage. So it's happening now in Joshua 21. This giving to the Levitical priesthood is something they're familiar with. They've been doing this all along. Giving back to the priests because they are contributing to God. But they do that through these Levite priests. And this creates a feedback loop of blessing. So it goes a little bit like this. The Israel is blessed. They've got livestock. They've got good produce, good grain, whatever. And they take from that the percentage that's prescribed. And they go to the Levitical priests. And they offer their sacrifices to God through the priests. The priests take that offering, that sacrifice, do what they're supposed to do with it in front of God. Wave offering, burnt offering, what have you. And they keep their portion that's meant for them, their inheritance, out of that so that they're, you know, fed, clothed, taken care of. So in doing that, Israel has worshiped God. The Levites are taken care of. God receives the worship and blesses Israel. Israel takes from that blessing that they get and they worship God with it. And it creates a feedback loop of blessing. And this, this tithe is part of the ceremonial law. It's how the nation of Israel takes care of the tabernacle slash the temple in the future and the priests who run it. So think of it like, like a tax. The tithe is like a, a tax, but it's also worship at the same time. Might explain why the religious elite were all up in a tizzy about whether they should tax the Caesar or not and came to Jesus with a coin. Under this ceremonial law, the Jewish people were required to give a percentage of their first fruits, or, or rather the first produce or income that came in. You make a sale on something, out of that income, a, the first 10% of that goes to God. You have a great crop that year, the first and best of that in a percentage goes to God. They're supposed to bring their first and their best. Later on, Israel would be uh, rebuked in Matthew 3 for not bringing their first and best, but instead bringing their last and their worst. And tithe means a tenth. This is one of those words that we use nowadays. We don't talk about it as, as much as far as breaking it down. We'll, we'll tell people it means a tenth because that's the definition of the word. It's one of these words that we transliterated. We didn't translate. It's like Satan. We didn't translate it and just say the adversary like it means. No, we just took the word and made it into English letters so we could say it. So tithe means a tenth. But scholars who go back and look at that, that concept, this whole giving a percentage, percentage, they say, well, actually, when you add it all together, it's not 10%. It's more like 12 to 20% of their income. And that was the tithe. So if you tithe biblically, double-check your numbers. And I know I said that in somebody's wallet, cringed, and I apologize. Remember, this is about hope. So with the gaps between us and the original audience, the original people reading this, we always have to analyze those gaps. Anytime you're doing any kind of interpretive work, when you're reading the Bible, that is interpretive work. You're trying to interpret what it says and understand it. So in that interpretive work, we, we recognize that there are gaps between us and who this was originally written to. The first major gap that we look at is one that we have to, we have to scrutinize. We have to be careful because this was written under a different covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And we recognize what, what 
Chris was talking about in worship, we're in a different covenant. We're in the new covenant, the covenant of grace, what Jesus accomplished for us versus a covenant where we've got to do and meet certain work requirements to be saved. So as this, this covenantal gap exists, we've got to scrutinize it. We've got to look at it and, and go, well, does, how does that apply now? Does that apply now? And I say scrutinize, I, I, I want to be clear that your theology must withstand scrutiny. Otherwise, it isn't worth having. What you believe about God, your theology, it must withstand scrutiny. Otherwise, it is not worth having. Another way to say that is this. If your beliefs cannot stand up to critique, you have built your house upon sand. So let's examine how the covenant of grace handles tithing. How do, how do, we, how do we deal with that on this side of the cross? First, Jesus doesn't talk about tithing all that much. He talks about money a lot. It's one of his top three, right? Kingdom of God, hell, and money. And he, he explains very clearly that the love of money is no good. And that's not for us. But tithing isn't something that he is, is super clear on. There are a couple of instances, a couple of places where we can extrapolate some information from the teachings of Jesus. And the first of those, I find in Matthew 6. In Matthew chapter 6, he's opening up on the, the three expectations in the Sermon on the Mount. And the first one is on giving. And I say expectations, I want to be clear. It says, when you give, when you fast, and when you pray, these are not if statements. This is not, hey, sometime in the future, if you ever come around to thinking about fasting or praying or giving, if you want to do that, then this is how you do it. No, it's when. And it's an expectation by Jesus, who is God. It's like when your parent has an expectation, it might as well be a rule. If Jesus has an expectation for us as believers, we need to treat that like a command. And his expectation is when you give. And then he explains that it should be done in secret. Not like the hypocrites, not like the religious elite people who want accolades and want look-at-me's, who give a big fanfare and let everybody know exactly how much and how often they give. Our giving should be done in secret. Secondly, Jesus says in Mark 12, he's, he's watching this widow. And she's giving. And when she's giving, he says to his disciples, she's given more than anybody else. And she only gave like two pennies. They're called mites. And Jesus says she's given more than anybody else. And the disciples, who are in their constant state of confusion, go, I don't, I don't get it. And Jesus explains that, no, 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 she gave everything she had. Everybody else is, is focused on this percentage. She's given everything, and he praises that action. So giving 100% is praiseworthy, according to Jesus. But how does he deal with the tithe? But this hasn't really gone to the tithe yet. Well, for that, we need to go to Matthew 23, where Jesus specifically talks about the tithe. And he's talking to those same religious hypocrites, those Pharisees, those teachers of the law. And he's in the middle of what's called the seven woes. And woes, very quickly, are curses. It's like when Isaiah saw God and he says, Woe is me. He's saying, I am cursed. I've seen the living God, and I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. And Jesus, in the middle of this, He's talking about seven woes to these Pharisees. By the end of it, just disciples going, ooh, you done been woed. (laughs) And this one, Matthew 23, verses 22 and 23, woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe all the way down to the dill and the mint. You're so good at tithing. You got this this 10% thing down all the way to your spice rack. 
He says, but you have forgotten. You neglect the weightier matters of the law, faithfulness, justice, mercy. You've neglected those and focused on this. What is he saying? He's saying, y'all majored on the minors. You missed it. He says, you should have done both. And you can take from that and go, well, Jesus is saying that they were supposed to tithe. No, he's saying they should have tithed because these were Jewish men under the Mosaic Covenant. Absolutely, they're supposed to be tithing. That's why he says both. He said, you majored on the minors. Yeah, don't neglect the minors either. Both and for them. So Jesus wants us to give. He wants us to do it in secret. He praises giving 100% and, and not neglecting the other aspects of, of biblical living. That tells me that God does not want just 10% of my income. He wants all of me. So on this side of the cross, we've examined what Jesus says about giving. What do the apostles say? And for that, we've got some pretty clear teaching, a really wonderful arrangement. The apostle Paul, in two different letters to the same set of house churches, talks about giving. And he was thinking ahead because he put them both in the same chapter. It's really easy to find. This is a joke. The numbers come later. They're not inspired, guys. You've got to keep up. All right, cool. So in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about giving. So if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 9, that's where we're going next. Paul there is talking about his rights to receive recompense for his gospel work. Should have been paid for the ministry work that he was doing, he was saying. This passage is in the middle, though, of an argument. Like, we could look at that and kind of isolate it, but it's in the middle of an argument in chapters 8 through 10, where he's talking about eating meat offered to idols. In chapter 8, he starts addressing this, this thing, saying, hey, you're a, you're a bunch of Gentile converts, a lot of you, and you have no problem eating meat that's been offered to idols and sacrifice. And that's, that's fine, because idols are nothing. That's cool. But there are Jewish converts among you who have a real issue with this. So for the sake of conscience... For the sake of their conscience, I need you to not exercise all of your rights. I need you to restrain some of those rights for the sake of other people and their conscience. And then he illustrates restraining his rights with chapter 9 before coming back around to talking about idol meat in chapter 10. So in chapter 9, in this illustration, he says this, starting in verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? For it is written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. What does he not say? He never mentions the tithe. That's odd right? Now, he, he is wide open to do so. There's a spot here where he's talking about the gifts given on the altar and the Levitical priesthood sharing in that, but he doesn't apply the, the concept of tithe there. Instead, he's using it as an illustration of those who work in ministerial ways shouldn't make their living from that same ministerial way. 
Pastor Richie should get paid for what he does here and all of the work that goes on behind the scenes. Absolutely. We agree with that. We agree with the Bible and we pay Pastor Richie. Boom. No questions asked. But he never mentions the tithe. He never says that the tithe was rightfully mine, guys. Where is that at? He doesn't. So we're going to take that, we're going to hold that in our minds, and we're going to go over to 2 Corinthians 9 and see what he says there about giving and, and see if we can figure this one out. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is discussing with the Corinthians a gift that they promised to send to Jerusalem for the, the believers that are there that are struggling. And he says, hey, it's awesome. I love that you guys want to give this gift. Me and some buddies from Macedonia, probably the church in Philippi, we're going to come down, we're going to grab it and head straight to Jerusalem from there. Uh, so he sends this letter and a couple of guys ahead to help kind of help prepare that gift so that it's ready when he gets there, he can grab it and he can bounce. And in 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6, he says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the, your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Again, no mention of tithe. Not even a mention of, hey, don't pull this from the tithe. This needs to be above and beyond. That language doesn't exist here or in, in the Bible. It's odd. You would think, right? With all of our talk about tithe in, in churches in America and why a lot of people cringe when we bring up money in the church, you would think that there would be a lot more in the New Testament from these apostles about the tithe, and there's not. The word tithe stops with Jesus. After the Gospels, it's not there. It's fascinating. And Paul says that each one decides in his own heart what to give. It's going to be different for everybody. There's no prescribed percentage or amount for anybody. It's going to be different. Each one decides in his own heart. So what does this tell us? This tells us that New Testament giving is not a percentage thing. It's a heart thing. New Testament giving is not a percentage thing. It is a heart thing. To examine this a little bit further, we need to figure out what is God's response to this giving, to the style of giving that, that Paul promotes here. How does God respond when we give this way? And by this way, I mean what he said when he said cheerfully and obediently and generously. God's response, he says, all sufficiency. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What is God's response when we give generously and obediently and cheerfully? It is to make us content. 
all sufficiency in all, at, in all things at all times is contentment. So if I give generously and cheerfully when I, when I do this, and I'm, I'm obedient in giving, in meeting this expectation of Jesus to give, what does God give me back in return? He helps me to be content what I have with where I'm at. And he does this so that we may abound in every good work. Out of this place of contentment, then, we have an abundance of good works, right? I, I don't do well in the whole good works area when I am discontent. Because when I am discontent, I am much more focused on me. And good works have a lot less to do with me. And a lot more to do with showing the character of Christ to others, the love of Christ to others. We want to list out what are some good works. Go to Ephesians 5 and 6. Be a good spouse. Be a good parent. Be a good boss. Be a good employee. Go to James and see, what does it say? Oh, true religion is this, taking care of widows and orphans. Loving others. Giving to others. What else is God's response? Contentment, good works, and an increased righteousness. An increased righteousness. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What's happening here? It's a change in character. It's it's a, a molding and a fashioning of us more into the image and reflection of the Son of God. It's showing the heart of Christ. He's maturing us through this process of giving cheerfully, obediently, generously. He's fashioning us into Christ. And when we do get enriched, he said, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. When we do increase, when our, the seed for the sower comes back and there's, there's more than I, than I had before, what is that more for? He says it's to be generous in every way. It's not, it's not that I am, I am blessed so that my material belongings increase, so that my bank account increases. No, I am blessed that to flow through and to be generous even more. So this sounds like it's a little bit more like the fruit of the Spirit than anything else. All these things also sound like that feedback loop we talked about earlier where I give through the church, obviously, to God. This is my sacrifice. This is my offering. This is my worship to God. I give generously, obediently, cheerfully. And what happens? Well, the church is taken care of. The, the, we got the lights on and AC, your heat going. God is honored and upheld and lifted up, and then God turns around in that feedback loop and blesses us with what? Maturity, righteousness, more generosity, an increased likeness to Jesus Christ himself. And from that, we're more generous, and the feedback loop continues. One of the ways that God doesn't respond, as we see in the New Testament here, is like he does in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 often gets used to kind of beat people up when it comes to, to giving in the church because you've got to run away, get away from that devourer. You've got to, you've got to open up the storehouses of heaven to, to, to bless you. That, that's not here. That doesn't translate over from Old Testament to New Testament. We're going to examine some of that here in a second. Instead, we go back to what we opened up with in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly, will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. What are they reaping? 
likeness to Christ sowing sparingly results in less maturity, less growth, outpouring of generosity and righteousness. Sowing bountifully increases that. Why? Because it's changing our heart. This, this alignment and practice of generosity is shifting around the things inside of us. And we are being molded more into Christ-likeness. Another text that gets misappropriated when it comes to giving is in Luke 6 where it talks about as you give so it will be given back to you pressed down chicken together and overflowing into your lap it's not about giving the, the passage in Luke 6 is talking about judgment as you judge others you yourself will be judged judge not lest ye be judged it's that one but somehow we've created this weird schism between the two it's the same passage and it's one about judging. So we've got to be very careful when we talk about this, this opportunity to give and be generous and to be obedient, not to make it into something it's not. We're, we're humans. We're very messy. And we, we, we twist things around and make stuff into, into more than it was or, or something off. Thank God we've got his word to realign us with the truth. Why? Why give? What does Paul say is our, our reason, if, if not for these storehouses to be opened and pouring out into our lap, all this blessing? He calls it submission. He says, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. What is submission there? Another way to, to translate that word is obedience. We talk about giving cheerfully and obediently. It's that expectation that Jesus had. If God has an expectation, treat it like a command. It's a fight I used to get into with my mom growing up. She would say, I would prefer you didn't do that. And I would think, well, that's a preference, so I can do what I want. And then I'd get punished and wonder why. Right? If God's got an expectation, treat it like a command. We submit ourselves to this this idea of giving. And it results, the other, other why for us is that it results in glory and thanksgiving for God. It honors God when we do that. And what happens? He gets the credit. Just like he does for Israel. When they did the right thing, when they followed him, they obeyed, they fought to claim the land just like he told them to. God gets the credit. When we're obedient and submissive and cheerfully generous, God gets the credit and the glory and the thanksgiving. So you might ask, why are we talking about this now? This is a really weird time in history to to stop and talk about giving. It's like I haven't been paying attention to the economic climate, right? We might have changed over the calendars, but it still feels a little bit like 2020. People are struggling. People are hurting. Things are crazy out there. So how does talking about the tithe matter? Well, for one, this is one of those things that happens when you're just kind of going chapter by chapter and working through a book. You've you're dealing with what, the, what it presents right there. I didn't want to talk about this. I was uncomfortable with this. I tried to weasel my way out of it. I was going to shoehorn something in that did not belong at all. <laughs> right? Because this is uncomfortable, talking about money in church. People have a visceral reaction sometimes. But why do we talk about this now? I'm talking about we're developing a systematic theology. We're talking about theological terms. I love big theological terms. I love them, but I was corrected recently. I was listening to somebody talk about how, how hard things are for them right now. And they, they said this, this statement that stopped me in my tracks. They said, I don't need big theological terms. 
What I need is hope. That cut me to the core. One, because I love big theological terms. That's my bread and butter. I want to get up here. I want to talk about all the isms in Christianity and just start ripping those things apart. I love big theological terms, but they said, I don't need big theological terms. What I need is hope. And the reason that corrected me is because that means I've done a poor job of of taking those big theological terms, these, these doctrinal matters, and translating out what they really are They are the beauty of the manifest goodness of God and his character. It's just our way of articulating those things, taking all of these huge ideas about God's greatness and trying to boil it down into something we can actually understand and say. And I I make focus too much on on, on how we've articulated it and all the scholarly stuff around it because I nerd out over that. And when I do that, I end up foregoing the part where I explain how it gives us hope, how beautiful it is, how, how it drives me back to worshiping God when I understand him better. So then why does talking about the tithe right now matter? Why does this tithe practice even exist then? Because what we've said without saying is essentially this, that the tithe, the concept of the tithe does not apply to the New Testament Gentile convert. When, when in the book of Acts, when they're doing all this, and they go, hey, look, guys, the Gentiles are in. God's granted them repentance. What do we tell them? They said, uh, no sexual immorality, and don't eat meat with the blood still in it. That's it. They didn't, they didn't tack on, oh, and make sure they tithe. So it, that law, that ceremonial law, does not necessarily apply to the New Testament Gentile convert. So then why is it in here? Why do we talk about it? Why do we do it in church? Why is it in the Old Testament at all? As these things often do, these these things that exist in the law and in the Old Testament, what is it there for? It's there to point us to Jesus. As the book of Hebrews points out, the Old Testament is full of types and shadows revealed in the New Testament and often in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This, uh, you can take a picture of that if you, if you can. We're going to work through it. It's a list of ways that the tithe points us to Jesus. Under the old covenant, you were cursed if you had no tithe. But in the new, you are cursed if you don't have Jesus. Under the old covenant, you dared not approach God without your tithe. But in the new, we have access into the throne room through Jesus. Under the old covenant, no tithe meant no meat in the storehouse, which meant that the uh, priestly tribe, the Levitical priesthood we've been talking about, goes hungry. But in the new covenant, Jesus is the meat who sustains his priestly people. The old covenant tithe was the priest's inheritance, but our greater inheritance is in Christ. Under the old covenant, you were blessed if you tithed, but in the new, we are blessed with every blessing on account of Jesus. Under the old covenant, one nation was blessed on account of the tithe, but under the new covenant, all nations are blessed on account of Jesus. What does this say to us? Jesus is our tithe. Jesus 
is our tithe. Jesus is the first fruits of humanity. He's our best and only acceptable offering. Jesus put an end to sacrifice for us by being the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. We were dead in sin. We wouldn't make very good offerings. Romans 3 tells us we are worthless. That's a hard line to take during evangelistic conversation. I'm trying to explain to somebody that they need Jesus because why? You're worthless. It doesn't go well. Don't do it. <laughs> Romans 3.12 says all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We would not make a good offering. We needed a perfect, acceptable offering, and that's Jesus. Christ being fully God and fully man is our best and first, the only acceptable offering and propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big theological term. It's appeased wrath, the wrath of God. He says, you are, I'm saved. What are you saved from? The wrath of God on sin. Christ took care of that for me. He lived a perfect life and died in our place, rising three days later. He imputed his righteousness on us. He put it on us. And our faith in him, along with repentance, is the only way we have to the Father, very much like the Levites. Jesus' sacrifice is our inheritance. It's our blessing. Confess your sins to the Lord. Repent of them and believe in Jesus. It's the only way to be saved. The only way. Not tithing won't keep you out of heaven. Not obeying the gospel will. How much you give can't save you or make you right before God. It doesn't even make you a good person. So the practice we see in Joshua 21 is giving back to the Levitical priesthood. It's an offering to God through them. It points us to the tithe. And the tithe is a signpost pointing to Jesus Christ. Our hope in dark times, in struggle, poverty, and pain is knowing Christ. That's it. No, no, nothing I can do, no self-help guru, five-year plan, 12-step method to a better tomorrow is going to cut it. It's not going to get me through this. My only hope is in knowing Christ. Period. Christ alone. Giving for us is, is no longer a percentage thing. It's a heart thing. So then we have to ask the question, should we give up tithing? No. But Josh, I thought you said this was whole, this whole thing was about, you know, like it's, it's done away with. It was ceremonial law, right? We're just we're generous, obedient, and cheerful. That's what we do now, right? Yes. So should we give up tithing? No. We don't give up tithing. You may not be able to give a, a tithe, a 10% of your income right now. You're not condemned for that. Give what you can and do it gladly. But the practice of the tithe is one that points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's like communion in that regard. The regular engagement with the tithe reminds us who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. It's worship. It's remembering. And that's what this whole book of Joshua has been about, is remembering monuments and mountains and slabs with the law of God written on it to remember God, who he is, what he's done. That, the 10%, the, the tithe, it's a, it's a benchmark. 
it's a great place to start or it's a great place to aspire to. But it's one that points us to Jesus, who is our only hope. So this right here, this is not some giving push or, or campaign. You can give on your way out. Only remember to do so as you've purposed in your heart to do cheerfully, generously, and obediently. And then we can agree with Paul when he says at the end of 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So let's pray and thank the Lord for his inexpressible gift before you're all dismissed. Father, holy God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, but thank you most of all for your son. For Jesus, who is our our tithe, who is the only acceptable offering in in our place. Lord, we're, we're just a bunch of sinners saved by your grace. We thank you for that. And we pray that your word has made an impact in our heart and will impact our lives. It will change the, the next time that we give, how we give, how we are responding to you when we do so. We ask that it would result in, in glory and thanksgiving to you. We thank you, Lord, for, for what you're going to do uh, this week. We're going to go back out into the world, and it's a crazy place out there. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But that doesn't change the, our anchor, our, our point of trust. It's in knowing you, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you for all this, Lord. We, we love you, and we, we'll walk out of here celebrating in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.